Welcome to Lab Sessions. I'm Zach Elliott. I love people, and I get to learn from some of the best. This show gives me a chance to invite you to join me in pursuit of more life and more beauty. Here's to that pursuit and to the conversations ahead. Hey, welcome to Lab Sessions. I am so glad that you are here. And these conversations give us an opportunity to listen and learn from people who are living and leading in really rich and beautiful ways. And people who have a perspective that may affirm or encourage or possibly challenge something in us as we seek to live well up and in and out. And today we're talking God, nature, and us. And my guest is a friend of mine who, in the words of John Muir, heard the mountains calling and said, I must go. Chris Breithaupt is a husband, father, artist, and craftsman, and he's using his gift and deep love for nature to create truly some of the most beautiful handcrafted pieces of art and furniture really in the world. So you can find him on Instagram, and we'll get to the links and how you connect with Chris and his work. And I think the only thing better than talking to Chris would be hanging out doing it in live in the Pacific Northwest. But we can't get there. But Chris, close enough. Thank you for joining us, at least for a phone conversation. That's my pleasure. As always, I like to hang out with you, even if it's virtually, and talk about things that matter. Yeah, well, I'm with you. Birds, grass, trees, I, I wish we were seeing it together. What What are you seeing, just to help people who are listening, who maybe haven't experienced the beauty of the Pacific Northwest, and really your particular vantage point, and we'll get to how you ended up there, but from your front porch, you know, from what you see when you walk out in the morning, just give us a sense of kind of your habitat right now, so that people can start to imagine where you're speaking from. Well, there are a lot of toys strewn about the front yard, backdropped on a big garden, and some fruit trees that we've put into a little orchard alongside the driveway, and behind that is a forested hillside looking out towards the Willamette Valley, and in the far distance we can see Mount St. Helens and, and Mount Hood. Lots of trees, lots of blue sky today. It's been rainy, but and lots of birds flying around and singing. Hmm. That's our everyday. What's the elevation at your property? Kind of where are you at? Because you're up on the hill, really the Shehalem Mountain side, if I'm getting that right. Yeah, Newburgh is on the Willamette River. It's about 200 feet above sea level, and we are about 900 feet. So though we call it a mountain, it's 700 feet above the city or the town of Newburgh. Uh, it feels taller when you're on it than when you're looking up to it. Yeah. Well, having been there, this is Willamette Valley, kind of the best of Oregon's wine country is right in this area where Chris lives. And in the fall, this Shehalem Mountain, this ridge that runs along, um, the kind of adjacent to or just off in the distance from the Willamette River, just turns beautiful colors with all the fall trees and that 900 feet feels small to you, Chris, but out here in Tampa, 900 feet, it takes us a while to find anything at 900 feet or at 200 feet for that matter. So we'll call, you can call it a mountain on this conversation, and we all agree, at least from out here, that you're on a mountain. Okay. 
I can feel, even as I imagine kind of being on your property, and I remember, you know, even the first times that you took me out to, to your property and we went for the walks and kind of made our way down and crossed the creek down in the deep woods there, I just, my blood pressure literally drops as I imagine that space and the quiet beneath the canopy out there and just even the size of the trees that are that are there. And it reminded me of another John Muir quote. I love his writing. And he was writing about national parks. And he said, thousands of tired, nerve-shaken, over-civilized people are beginning to find out that going to the mountains is going home, that wildness is a necessity. I love that, that wildness is a necessity. What do, you, what do those words provoke in you when you hear them? wildness is a necessity. Oh, I mean, I've been reading lots of the Chronicles of Narnia to the kids at bedtime, and Lewis depicts Aslan in, in ways he's, he's not a tame lion. He's wild. And Lewis just peppers all of his writing with this idea of the untamed parts of God's creation. You know, in the beginning, God spoke all into existence and so to get to go out and see his unpainted untamed handiwork that came right from his mouth is uh it's pretty awesome mm. and this is some i mean this is your day-to-day experience and part of part of the adventure that took us to from the pacific northwest all the way out to, to tampa was this writing project and at the core of the book i was writing was this idea that we needed to recalibrate the creature creator relationship exactly what you're talking about this this idea that we come face to face with a god who is not a tame lion he is good he is infinitely good but he his expanse his his being is not it's it's wholly other as as rudolf otto said there's something that causes us to to tremble um, even in even within his goodness and his love, and that really it's healthy for the creature and the creator to be recalibrated and to have that unsettled experience. And when I was doing research about where people felt unsettled like that, they felt maybe that little twinge of the awesomeness of God. Literally 100% of the people that I interviewed during the writing process said that they felt closest to God outdoors. And yet, there's an EPA study that came out that suggested that the average American spends 93% of their time indoors. And in addition to the time that we're spending indoors, we're merging more and more with machines, we're Zooming, we're on technology, we're becoming more and more dependent and connected in that world, and less and less familiar, familiar or proximal with the natural world. So whether we have language for it or not, we feel it. I think anxiety, depressions, physiological effects, that's all happening to us. And we can get into the theological sides and, and maybe we'll pull on those threads, but you chose quite the opposite. You chose to inhabit and merge your life spiritually, physically, emotionally, vocationally, really intentionally, and much more closely with the natural world. You traded a daily commute to the center of the Nike campus, which is just outside of Portland, for really daily walks in the wild. Why did you make that choice? And maybe what was your experience acclimating as you kind of went 
into a new orientation and and gave up the daily entry and exit out of the city and out of the Nike campus and began to make kind of home life and your vocation all merge together more in the wild? Well, it's complex, um, obviously. It's, I wish I could say it's one simple 15-word soundbite. Um, but to try to distill it, and I, maybe even the word distill is part of it. Um, you know, you take apples and you crush them, you squeeze out the juice, you discard the pulp, and then you you can make cider, you can distill it and get down to that crystalline. And I I think, wow, that's, that's part of it. I love the crystalline distilled product. I'm not speaking specifically of some hard alcohol. I mean, I like getting <laughs> okay. things that have been refined over, you know, just over a period of time and, and really crafted into an amazing product. That's great. And that's, that's one of the things that I did at Nike too. And it was to, to put tons of thought and energy and gymnastics into making a very refined, but simple and elegant product. But the base material in this metaphor of the apple is also wonderful. The color, the sheen, as you cut open, the first time I bit into a rosé apple, I, I had no idea such a thing existed. I peeled that skin bite away, and inside was this brilliant pink fruit. Inside an apple, I had no idea I'd created such things. And so the apple, in its base state, is is speaking a different language than the very distilled, refined, elegant product. And I felt called, and my wife as well, we both, even before we met, had this God pulling on our strings, you know, to say the simple things that I have made, maybe they have a lot to say. Mm. And it takes some quiet time with, with an apple or a tree or a little stream to be able to hear his voice speaking. But as he says over and over, he is speaking look into the night sky it's proclaiming you know the trees of the field are clapping all these voices have things to say and i wanted to hear his voice um and i wanted my children Teresa and i both my wife Teresa. um we wanted our children to be able to hear his voice um now don't get me wrong god is also speaking through our hands and what our hands can do um but as you say 93 percent that doesn't sound you know, just take that number of 93%. You know, people are indoors. If we could just uh, transfer that number onto the amount of connection and um, touches that we have with the refined, the crafted, I'll be a little bit brash, but the asphalt, concrete, and glass of what man has made, we spend a lot of time there. Mm. And right now, you know, to sit in a, an environment that is quiet and uh, where I can have a nice crystal call from you. I'm, I'm inside a quiet space that's for a purpose. Um, I can hear a bird in your background. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's awesome. Through the, through technology, but it's so different. And I'll stop speaking in just a moment, give you a chance here, but just yesterday, you know, I was working in my barn with big double doors open, looking at the, what I described a moment ago is my daily view. And even in that, a little Western tanager caught my eye as it flew by. And I've only seen a few in my life. And it's this brilliant 
yellow bird with a, with a very bright red head. And I had to turn my, my tools off and step out of the, the barn and just pause and look up and watch this bird on a branch for a couple minutes just to see that color. It was, it was a gift and a moment. I want to pause just really quick and pull and just put it kind of locate a couple things, maybe ask people to, to do a couple things. First, if you're, if you're listening, most likely on a computer, uh, you're in your car, you're on your phone, just take a deep breath, if you would, like a really, really good deep breath, and even allow yourself to get just more comfortable as we progress through this conversation. Um, that idea of 93% of our time spent indoors, contrasted with 100% of people that I talk to saying that they've, they experience something of a proximity to God and an aliveness when they are outside, that that's the place that they would say, I, mo- I felt most like me, most human when I was in the natural world. And again, as Chris said, nothing against the, the world that we inhabit, that we built, but it, it is different. It's entering a studio or a space that we kind of created and we mediate we control the temperature, we control the lighting, we control all these things are in our control. And to exit that space of control, there's something creaturely that is good for us to remember that really it's hard to remember when you're in a place that you control. But when you put yourself in this space that Chris is describing, that I think we all kind of have a longing to go, as John Muir said, it, it's home. The, there's something about home in the mountains, in the wild. And I think that's what it is. It's, it's we're made to be in our Father's world, so to speak. That's where we were created to inhabit and to enjoy and to hear His voice. If you're listening, remember what Chris said, that he and his wife wanted his kids to be able to hear. And again, he put it so well. It's not that God doesn't speak in the cities or in the asphalt or in our art that we create in buildings and architecture, but there's something of a whisper um, in his voice that that you hear in the quiet. And scripture is clear just that the that his creation is declaring it. It's pouring forth its speech. So, this is good. We're going to settle in and keep pulling on this. And I imagine, Chris, this was, I mean, it, it required some recalibration for your family. It's not, it's not all roses to locate off, you know, off the grid. You have to try to get to your property. It's not, you can't just take a bite quick in and out for some groceries. Did you ever have moments of, was there a detox that happened to you? And if so, I wonder what are some of the things that you remember that were maybe the highest highs, the joys going, I don't have to drive anymore, 40 minutes to work or commute. But on the other side, were there things that you noticed that you went, wow, I've become accustomed to fill in the blank as you started to move further and further, closer and closer to, to a natural environment? Absolutely. It's an exchange of economies. Most definitely. And uh, I can use a, another metaphor. This is the way I speak. I'm sorry. When I was a, an art student and I had my senior thesis, I had a big gallery display and, and a, a real trained academic artist was present and was viewing this artwork that I had made. And they, you know, they did that typical black turtleneck, you know, <laughs> hand on their, look at it. And they, they turned and they said, Oh, 
I can see what you did here. And they proceeded to unpack, possibly, maybe, accurately, what had been going on within me as I made this image that we were experiencing, this painting. <laughs> In my life, so many times have been retroactive unpackings of things that have happened. And I look and I say, oh, can I connect the dots here? Is this what, what was going on? Is this what God had in mind when such and such and such? And so, yes, retroactively, as I'm in the woods now, I can look back and, and I can try to connect the dots. And, and I'm still in the middle of that process. I think I'll be in it when I'm 16 and looking back at 50, scratching my head saying, huh, didn't you, how could you not see? Or, and when I'm 70, looking back at 60, it'll be the same. Lord willing. Um, yeah, that exchange of economies is, is profound. I've also experienced the other side of that. When Teresa and I first married, we moved away to a remote island in Alaska and homesteaded there. And the exchange there was extremely profound. No community, no neighbor. Um, the, the convenience of everything convenient went out the door and we were a slave to the fire we had a wood stove that heated our house heated our water for cooking and bathing and we cooked on it and so just that exchanging the commute to home depot or fred meyer or safeway for i had to cut firewood a lot mm. <laughs> and stoke that fire and so on um one of the reasons we relocated here to newburgh oregon was because of the profound lack of neighbor and community. And that exchange we felt as we moved from my corporate job at Nike into onto Shehala Mountain. Similarly, like those conveniences, the availability of quick, easy, um, wasn't as extreme as the Alaskan experience, but it was felt. And we even still today as we have, well, not today, not during the COVID period, but when we had friends over and they would talk about, oh, we walked down to the store the other day, we went to the such and such, and we were like, oh, yeah, we remember that when you would bump into a friend on the street. Mm. We don't bump into anybody in the woods, really. <laughs> yeah, we bumped into lots of other things, but yeah, that easy convenience, so that exchange of the economy of quick, easy for the slow more difficult or that's not the right way to say it but slower and intentional yeah yeah maybe and difficult in a different way the physicality i just imagine you you know splitting wood the slave to the fire help people understand like homestead was one thing in alaska but that's really the idea that you endeavored um, to take on when you moved to Shehalem Mountain too. Give us just a little bit of an understanding, even just a very, very intro level, 101 look at what does that mean, like to homestead? You, you, you have electricity, you have, you know, you have basic things now on Shehalem Mountain, but what are some of the things that you're in, that are, you're intentional about in that ecosystem? I heard you talk about the fact that there's a garden present there's a barn, which is your shop where your vocational life um, really inhabits. What makes up that, if you were to try to describe the homestead experience to somebody who goes, what, what does that even mean? 
well, there's this there's this fence that you can step on either side of. For us, it's been, do we engage in these activities because they're entertaining or because they're necessity? For instance, we've had chickens our whole married life, and we've had wood stoves our whole married life, and we've had gardens our whole married life, and we've done this and that. But the transition or the segue from doing it because it's entertaining and we appreciate it to doing it because if we're going to feed five children and we don't want to uh, burn fossil fuels to the store and back all the time or so on and so forth, our principles would govern that we, we need to put enough seeds in the ground and spend enough hours weeding and then enough hours harvesting and enough hours processing and canning that in the winter and the, even some in the fall and then next spring before the new ones are on, we'll have enough green beans to feed the baby and enough applesauce to, and enough cider to, and enough this and enough that and enough eggs. It's uh, It can be tyrannical, the agrarian life. Mm-hmm. But instead of going to Fred Meyer and throwing the kids in the cart, and we do that, don't get me wrong, but that, you know, the two-year-old is accompanying the four-year-old is accompanying the six-year-old down to the chicken coop to grab eggs right from the source. And that they're also in the rain or the shine out there with their little bucket throwing slop into the coop and scooping feed from the bin or pulling weeds or they take a long stick and this is gross, but they, you know, they stab the slugs throughout the yard and the garden to, you know, make sure that our lettuce is good. Mm. <laughs> Collecting the sod of from the whip, you know, I can go on and on and on. Yeah. Just even the the fact that the kids are in the dirt, you know, they're exposed to, there, there's a very real idea of, of immunity and in the dirt and what our bodies are supposed to be engaging with or can, what, what might be helpful for our bodies to engage in, maybe is a, another way to say it. As you look at your kids in that experience, what's one thing that you can you can point to and you can say, that character trait, in my kids is 100. I can, I can tie a direct link back to that walk down to the chicken coop or fill in the blanks, you know, slugs or whatever other experience, but that ecosystem that they're inhabiting, what can you point to and just say, as a human, they possess this character trait that I don't know if they were not in that environment, if they'd have it. Mm. Well, it's, it's not all positive or it's not all pleasant, but, they have a sense of, uh, even in their, their young minds, and it's an abstract thought of mortality. Um, they know that things come and go. There's a season for everything. Um, and though they may not be able to articulate it, obviously they're young for that, but they're learning that, that character trait of a sense of awe at the natural flow of events and the natural seasons of life and the seasons of the year is forming, forming them liturgically as they practice these things day in, day out. It's forming their perspective on life and the world. Um, you know, Solomon has some things to say about the beginnings of wisdom. It's, you know, fearing the Lord and to, to contemplate our own finiteness. And he, he waxes poetically about it. And they're getting that, not through words, not through classroom work, but as they eat the fruit of a chicken, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or they 
they till in at the end of the season all the plants that were giving them food. And then they scratch a line on the ground and drop a seed in and wait and so on. Yeah. Mm. Or to go to my business, you know, the, the wood that we go out in the wood and we don't just indiscriminately fall trees, but if we need wood for a project, they try to pick. And if we cut one down, we're putting another one in the ground and so on. Those kinds of, it's an exchange as we care for this land, it cares for us and so on. I think this is a great moment. You know, we're 20 some minutes into the conversation and I think it's a great opportunity to say, you know, why are we, why are we talking to Chris? What's, what's the hope in a conversation like this for somebody who lives in Seattle or lives downtown Tampa or in LA? And I think what I'm hopeful for is, Chris, your life contrast is beauty, and it allows us to see that there's some really beautiful things about each of our experiences in more of an urban context as contrasted against what you're doing on Shehala Mountain. But if you're hearing Chris talk, just the intentionality, you think about just this. This is one-to-one. We go to the grocery store. You might go to a Publix down here in the southeast or um, Safeway or Fred Meyer, wherever you do your shopping, and think how quickly we grab an apple and put them in the bag. We put six of them in a plastic bag. We wrap the tie around it, put it in the grocery cart. On to the next. We grab some carrots. Maybe they're prepackaged little baby carrots. But it's there's a th- and it's not a bad thoughtlessness. It just is. We're moving quickly and we're not connecting. There's not a connection being made to every single apple. There's, there, there's not a, a stream of thought that is rooted um, in the ground as we sit down for dinner and we cut these things. Those are just missing. And so you go, well, what do you want me to do? Move to the woods. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is perhaps in hearing Chris speak, it's an invitation for us to just start to engage more thoughtfully in the ecosystem that we're in. How much are we passing by? How quickly are we reaching for things? How thoughtlessly maybe are we just moving about the ecosystem that God's put us in? And I think, Chris, what you're doing is inviting us just with the beauty of your story to say, huh, maybe what are the ways right now that I can maybe just recalibrate back just a bit? I think that that's so, so helpful. And Maybe just to put the cherry on that, on that. What's give us something from your day each day that that you really are grateful for that you can say living on the side of this mountain every day. This ecosystem provides me one little moment that I've become that's almost become liturgical. It's something that I get to engage in that I have found in this environment that's really life giving. Oh, that's hard to do, Zach, because. You know, if you're losing weight or putting it on, you see the little, you don't see, but mm. it's the day-to-day. You bump into a friend you haven't seen in five years, and they say, whoa, <laughs> been working out, or the yeah. opposite, you know, <laughs> wow. Uh, um, and that, it's just, it's been a part of of our story for long enough. I, you know, the, the key words are gratitude and remembering, right? Um, that you, like the Israelites would put a, a stack of rocks to turn around and look at and remember. Um, so we're doing that. I think, you know, as Teresa and I were talking about it last night, a bit in preparation for our conversation today, when I put a fruit tree in the ground, you know, and we fight off the gophers and the voles that are trying to kill it and the, the bugs and the this and the that and the blight, 
and the tree survives and it makes it a few seasons. And I go out and I, <laughs> you know, caress the leaves and I count the buds and I, I just hope that this tree will provide fruit for my children. Mm. That, that sense of, I, I, just, I distinctly remember in those early moments of homesteading, a, a little lead had blown out of a tree, just like you would have on your sidewalk in Tampa or anywhere. And I bent down to, to move the stick and I thought it was weird and pretty insignificant, but I remember it today. This is a stick my kids aren't going to have to move. And hmm. there's, there's just that gratitude of putting a fruit tree in the ground, things that could last, that could last and provide for God's children. And, and then I can open up the, the door to, and our community, which during this time of COVID, we have set up a schedule, a calendar online that people can click and reserve an hour at a time up to, you know, a day or a couple of days where they can come and hang out, camp down in the woods on our property. And it's been, it's been delightful for us to see the vehicles parked at the trailhead or, you know, people knocking on the door. Oh, where do we park? Mm. Go. And to hear tales of what that was like to do the very thing that you and I are talking about today, to be in the quiet with the birds in the creek rustling, no noise, no signal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love it. What a perfect segue to this kind of idea that I wanted to get your take on uh, because you've created space and I love the generosity to share the forest with other people. So I want to get your take on this idea. The, the, the idea is a Japanese idea called forest bathing. And the Japanese word is shinrin-yoku. Um, and literally, shinrin is forest and yoku is bath. So forest bath. And some of you may have heard it. A lot of you who are listening are like, oh, here we go, Oregon. But no, stay with me. This is Japanese idea, and it's beautiful. And the idea is really simple. It, it's to immerse or bathe yourself in the forest and, and to do it slowly, but to intentionally go into the forest and engage the forest with all of your senses. So you're seeing the colors, you're smelling the different varieties of foliage, and, and you're even touching like the trees, feeling the bark, hearing the birds, maybe taste something if you're brave and have a little bit of wisdom. There's all of the, your senses are being bathed in the forest. And what's remarkable is that there is data that literally shows and documents a decrease in blood pressure, healthier breathing, increase in white blood cell counts. They've done study after study that shows that even after a little, just a few hours, there was significant documentable changes physiologically in people as they entered the forest. And this is, I could geek out all day on this idea, but I'm curious, you've opened your home to, for people to, to do this. Have you heard of the idea? And if not, maybe what are the habits and practices that you're already doing that you go, yeah, this is in perfect alignment with this. And maybe how have you experienced though the, that, that idea of forest bathing uh, in your own family's life? Our rejuvenation. You know, as I was working at Nike and we were downtown Newburgh, living in the suburban ghetto, if you can have that even in Newburgh, but there's some there. And we just longed for this very thing that you're talking about. And 
we had no idea where we'd live there, but we thought, could we just afford to buy a piece of land that nobody wants that offers this thing? And so we did. We, we bought this place for the purpose of allowing ourselves and our community to, to have a close place to go and be in the, as you keep saying, the, all the senses, like encountering God viscerally through, it, it's visceral. Like if you turn down the noise and don't have signal and you're not waiting for the next thing and you, you can't help but smell the cottonwood buds, you know, that's the bone of Gilead. Mm. You know, it's, and the fur needles and whether it's the moss or the, the dirt in the swamp, <laughs> that muddy smell. Um, and my heart is heavy for those who may not have any connotative memories that would cause visceral reactions or responses when entering into the forest. So I think there's both. It can be the first time and it have a, an effect that's positive, as you say. Also, there's the memory of, mm. and it could be, is the word primordial okay to say? Yeah. It could be, it could be visceral beyond our own immediate experience. Yeah. Um, and I, I get it. Those two that I mentioned, the smell of mud and a particular kind of mud that's decaying organic material like that's, that's taken years, decades, centuries to develop or cottonwood buds. And I know cottonwood grows all around the world, so everybody can get that. But there are times when I, I catch that and it's, it is a balm. It is soothing to me. Um, yeah. There is... No question. I mean, Chris is just speaking to it from living in it, but the the medical research is there, is documented within hours. There's something that happens in our physical bodies. And I think the encouragement there is, again, we're all in different contexts, different parts of the world, but we need to be honest. And that's part of the hope of having this conversation is as we become more dependent and merge greater and greater degree with machine and ecosystem that we're building, we have to stay honest with ourselves. We have to remember that we are humans, that we are creatures, that we our very bodies are made to interact and to react with things that literally are in the trees, these phytoncides that, that release from the trees that are in the antimicrobials that are in the forest that, that literally rejuvenate you, increase white blood cells. We can't forget it. And generation to generation, we can't forget the importance of even just exposing our kids to it. And it's good on the physical level. Chris, I'm curious how your time in nature has recalibrated your creature creator relationship. Like are you, what are some of the ways that you're intentional to hear that whisper and how do you make space for that? I mean, do you get a little bit more practical with us? Is it, do you find that like, Hey, I do five minutes, I do 10 minutes. I go and I listen and I sit on a rock. Like how do you help get that creature creator recalibration do you have some habits and practices that might help um, somebody who's going, hey, I can't get to the woods, but I may be able to go to Central Park, or I can go down by the river and there's that running trail, and if I get off the sidewalk, I can find it. You know, Help us out just to start to imagine some habits and practices and ways of being creature 
and not just creature for the sake of being creature, but really to start to make the connection between not just the created world, but to the creator behind it. Yeah. I could preface a little, you know, as, as Teresa and I were chatting last night, as I was kind of preparing, um, we were sitting, standing around the kitchen sink after the chaos of the kids were, you know, all in bed and we opened a bottle of wine and we, we started talking about this and we both remembered that during the, the darkest times of our lives, the most difficult times, whether just circumstantial or trauma or uh, whatever, that the, the thing that gave us the most hope was remembering those places that we're talking about today. Mm. For Teresa, it was remembering that next spring, those little trailing blackberry vines that grow on the ground are going to they're going to start doing their thing. They're going to start growing. And in a little while after that, they will, those little white flowers that mean nothing, they they're, will, will come out. And after that, if you go and look under the leaves, you will see that bright, beautiful fruit that it will happen. It will happen. Mm. And that that's Tony. And just for her, I, even as we're talking around the sink last night, I could see it in her body and her in a way she was speaking because she was experiencing just by remembering that, that you know God spoke and creation occurred and his words are so strong, so powerful, so magical that even her remembering those words as they showed themselves in those little blackberries was was healing to her, just from the day's chaos. For me, you know, it's remembering that there's this there was this kids camp that I went to in Alaska. Um, and it, on a quiet day out on, on the field at that camp, I, you could actually hear in the summer, you could hear the glacier that's a few miles away. You could hear it calving. You could hear the rumble and tumble of those pieces of ice rolling down the hill and the eagles and the birds. I, in the dark moments of my life, remembering that that place existed mm-hmm. was God speaking a healing voice into my life. And so it begins for us absolutely with remembering. And it's, it's a humble posture of submission to the seasons, a humble posture of submission to maybe not right now in this season. I can't be there or those vines aren't going right now, but that there's a promise that's spoken that he will make a new heavens and a new earth and it will be glorious and just to lean into the memory of those glimpses that we've got, Lewis says in The Great Divorce, right? When you first painted, he's talking to the artist. When you first painted, it was because you caught a glimpse of the heavenly landscape and you wanted to tell us about it. Mm. And, and it's so remember, remember that. And so for me, it starts with remembering. If I can get caught up, even in the woods, Zach, you know it. I mean, I can get caught up with the, the tyrannical day and the mundane or whatever it is and forget. Mm-hmm. And it, so it starts with remembering, oh yeah, oh yeah, here I am. Wow. I, I just, I wanted to share one anecdotal moment where, you know, I, I have this thing, you know, you know, the Patagonia symbol, mm-hmm. it's like the Patagonia mountains with that beautiful sunset in the background and that type 
that font that everybody recognizes as Patagonia. Yep. Right. And in the Northwest, everybody loves it. Everybody's wearing it. Everybody wears, I have hats, right. With that on it. And I saw a picture of a, a hip hop artist, um, in LA is, you, you probably know propaganda Alma mm-hmm. and he was wearing a shirt that it was the exact same, everything, the same type of font, the same image, but instead of it being the Patagonia mountains, it was the, a very simple skyline of LA. And I'm, I'm in my shop by myself. I'm smelling the, the wood shavings, you know, and doing my thing. The birds are singing outside and I've got the woods. But when I saw that t-shirt on my phone there in my wood shop, of him wearing, wearing that I was moved to tears just because God's creation is speaking through the lives and the souls of the people in that urban landscape. And I, I don't know how to, I, I'm in the middle of being chewed on by this. I don't know how to balance. So yes, I have the woods and this peaceful, quiet voice of God. And here's this guy whose music and poetry I love wearing a shirt that same image but it's the people of LA and his heart for them and wow mm. it's chewing up I don't get it I hope I didn't derail our conversation too much with saying that no I love it I love the just the idea that the the landscape that God is there and even the just the presence of the sun in both spaces kind of giving light to both making possible something in both spaces that there's fullness of life in, in both of those contexts, in all of these contexts. And no, I love it. And I love how you were you took us right to your to your shop as well. Before we get before we talk shop literally, I, I just want to go back to something Chris said, the that it begins with remembering. And again, taking notes, learning from Chris what can we take away from this conversation? One of the things that I just wrote down it literally was it starts with remembrance. And so again, if you have that jogging trail, that bike trail, even through a city where, where you are, I, what a great invitation to start to remember. It's only, it's only true if it's true. There's these things that we want to be true in our lives. So find those spaces where you can look at it in the rainy season here in Florida. It's different. You know, it's sunny every single day, but there are seasons. And so go find that space in the rainy season so that when you're sitting there in the dry season, you can remember the difference and you can remember the presence of God and what he was doing in your life, around your life, through your life, in the world at those moments. That's an invitation that we can all say yes to right now. And so thank you for that. Just the power of setting a habit of remembrance and then creating opportunities and spaces where we can return back to, even if it's not the side of a mountain, but there's these, there's these areas where we get a vantage point of the changing landscape, whatever culture context we're in, where we, it, it helps us with that remembrance. That's so good. Chris, you, did a not just moving your family to the Shehala Mountain, but your work, as you said, you your kids are selecting trees. You're choosing to harvest trees. Take us to your shop just a little bit and and help us. Um, let's pull on the thread a little bit about just work of our hands. Tell us a little bit about work of our hands and the dream of work of our hands, your passion that led to the creation of that uh, venture 
And then just what are you what are you most excited about that you're working on and, and that you're getting to work on? Mm. Well, it's so funny that you, you refer to it as work of our hands, which it is. That's the name of the business. But there's one more word at the end, woodcraft. Yeah. And so these two ideas, work of our hands and woodcraft. And I, I kind of started playing with the idea of the business before we ever started it being titled work of our hands out of Ecclesiastes as... Solomon's pretty down on most of most stuff. <laughs> there's just there's like two two times where he really says this is good. He says, you know, remembering the Lord in the days of your youth that is good, and taking joy in the work of your hands that is good. And so these these things. So I really wanted to to lean into that and offer that to people as you you experienced. You know, as you shot bows at the side of the the garage, that first shop iteration there in Newburgh mm. and our arrows, you shot arrows yeah. with a bow. Into <laughs> with a bow. But that, you know, I have this sign there, work of our hands so that we would bring joy and have joy as we made something that would be from our own work, our, our hands, something that would last potentially beyond us. But if not just a physical product that came from the time that we spent and the sounds of moving a plane across wood, and the smell of the insect cedar or, and so many men have come through that space and experienced that. Mm. Even, even guys at Nike, I actually took a, an incense piece of Cypress to Nike with a little homemade hand plane and let these coworkers and, and bosses of mine do that. And the feel of the wood cutting and the vibrant smell. It's so funny. They pick up that little curled wood shaving from the plane and there's a sense of, gratitude and and uh joy even in these <laughs> everybody it's amazing mm. because I, this, I cut this piece of wood i made this there's this piece of wood for me i made it you know it's so fun so to go from that to the other side is woodcraft and not nowadays you say woodcraft and it means you're making things out of wood and that's true yes but the old world definition of woodcraft is living in harmony within the woods with the woods and nature. And so it's, it's both. And I hate that I have to define it, but that's, we're losing words left and right. No, this know? is good. Like the word conservative, mm. you know, what are we conserving? Well, the word woodcraft is to live in harmony, using the woods and giving back. And when Wendell Berry, I don't know if you're familiar with this prophetic voice from the seventies is still around. He's writing great stuff. Oh yeah. And he, he wrote, he wrote a bunch of good books. One, the gift of good land, uh, the, the practical homestead. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. so many. Um, and, and in there, he and in his more recent writings, he talks about the very dust of his body from dust we were formed, and we'll go back to it. So he works the land and gets the corn or the, the vegetables, and he eats it, and the land gives him life. And then he will go back to the land, mm. and his great, 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 grand, grand, grand children will be eating from the land that his body is a part of and this submission to the liturgy that God wrote into the world from dust you came and dust you will return that even that is part of woodcraft Mm. is that submit to the realities of well I can't cut every tree down and make one big thing and then make another thing because their trees are gone so to to be at a pace that is sustainable and so on and so forth wow What an incredible, I mean, 
to think that the thank you for giving definition to the word because again we're losing we're losing our ability to understand these things and it's so important just even to think the 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 picture of the chair that I love um, that I'm looking at when I go to um, your your Instagram page that came from a tree you can't make a hundred thousand of those chairs you can't make fifty of those chairs from that tree that kind of limit and the to see you work with hand planers and to see the joints the way that you've joined things together and the grains of the woods come together it's it is it is art and the woodcraft piece there's a theological layer to it i just i think it's phenomenal if people want to follow your work and just even just to start to enjoy a little bit of the world that you inhabit and to watch you as you're building some of these things you get to share the journey with with some of your projects how do people can people follow you can they find you on instagram find you on the web uh, and use technology to help them again just follow this story a little bit more certainly it's there i i couldn't keep them from doing so i guess (laughs) <laughs> if they were to, if they were to look, it's there. How do they find you? What's the handle? I guess is the. I don't even know if that's the way you say it. My kids would cringe if I, they heard me saying that. How do they find you? Yeah, we're we're two peas in the pot here, Zach. I'm not exactly sure what the the title is either. But work of our hands, woodcraft, is the name of our business, and can be found on Instagram or Facebook. Okay. Well, I'll have my technologically savvy younger tribe help us find, make the connection. But I just love, there's days where I will open up uh, Instagram to share something that's happening out here in Florida and I'll see a picture from out there and from your shop. And I can literally, those wood shavings or the light hitting a piece that you're working on, it's it's life-giving. So go find um, the, the work of our hands, Woodcraft, follow that. I know I got to let you go, but I want to. I'm going to ask you three questions. One, I just want you to speak a little bit prophetically, and don't hold back on this. I want to invite you to really be honest because I think we need it right now. And I've been asking leaders from different contexts, people from you know poetry backgrounds or art or the military, business, you know, just to to help give us some words of caution as we start re-entering and reopening. Um, so many people have said, hey, all of our, you know, our why, um, Andy Crouch's, our why hasn't changed, but our what and our how likely have. And so lots of people, lots of leaders are having conversations about, okay, what do we put back into our lives? A lot was pruned out. And if you could give us just a word of caution first, as you think and pray from your vantage point, and, and we start to reemerge from the COVID pandemic into this post-COVID landscape, maybe what's a word of caution specifically to leaders, to Christian leaders, people leading their families, schools, homes, businesses, churches? What are you feeling that you just could say, yeah, let's be careful here? Well, you know, I take a deep breath. It can't be done virtually Hmm. community just uh, I think of David James Duncan's book The River Why someone asks him to define a river and he he uses words to describe well I could get my hands wet in it 
can show you the wet hands, or I could dip a bucket of water from it and show you the bucket of water. But you can't see the 27 miles from the headwaters trickling down the leaves into the moss, into the soil, with the bugs and the salamanders making one little rivulet that then joins another and another and starts to eat away at the dirt so that the rocks are bare and the moss. And, the, and he goes on to describe what we all have seen and, and felt and experienced standing on a river. Mm. It, though he's a master of words, absolutely, and we get the pictures, and please keep writing those. They're, they're wonderful to read, but it, it is just a representation it's, it's trying to, to say that's what a river is, but go to a river. It has mm. to be done in person. So right now, with, for, for me and this conversation and all the wrestling with COVID, it's, it's rending something in me to see the liberty that we have to experience things in proximity, face-to-face, so to speak, not face-to-computer, through the miles and then another face to computer on the other end that little we're face to face. So maybe even to transition from that to, you know, body to body, or as Lewis says, you know, about friendship, love and the four loves it's, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder, looking at the same thing. That's where friendship really is. And wow. being the same, it's face to face is different. I actually read a sociological study recently about what it's going to do to this generation and, and us the time of recuperating from everything now is done virtually face to face when our normal interactions are shoulder to shoulder mm. and doing life next to each other. And so whether it's walking into a forest, everything turned off, you know, hearing God's voice or walking next to a friend or even a stranger, those things are done, um, in the simple elegance of God's creation, the way they were meant, that it really gets back to that for me. And so I'm a little bit nervous, a little bit um, wondering how we'll tide this current winter. This, as N.T. Wright put it, this may not be just a blizzard. Hmm. It may be an ice age that we're entering into. And to not, to live, not live in fear, but to embrace as many opportunities as I can, as my children can, to be in proximity, in the real, physical, created things, whether it's the people or the nature, virtually. And just to, uh, you said, don't pull any punches, so here's here's the punch for me. As I see see social dialogue, um, and I, I don't really do much with it, Though I Instagram and Facebook, it's almost it's 99% for the business. I don't try to engage in the social media scene at all. And But the, the 1% that I, when I'm there, that I glimpse, I just, social dialogue, the, able, the ability to have discourse around anything real and important virtually is impossible. I think mm-hmm. it, you know, 15 words can't do it. Mm-mm. You know, even a 15-minute soundbite can't do it. And it's so polarizing because the lack of everything real and, and proximity, it's like trying to describe a river with a bucket of water. It can't be done. And my heart is breaking for good people um, uh, talking about a tough subject virtually 
are creating enmity mm-hmm. because because they're not. Oh, here, let me go back to Wendell Berry. About 1974, wrote a book. I uh, wrote an essay, and he, he was talking about the telephone and what that would do to society and culture. And what he, what he said was, this year, the parent who's told them with a bad report from school, and they they make a bad report of their teacher. Well, now, with the advent of the telephone, this person would never have marched over to the teacher's house, pounded on the door, and had face-to-face confrontation because some of those real proximity parameters have been removed. They pick up the telephone, they dial the number, and they chew the teacher out, and then they slam the phone down. And it's given, it's equipped people to do things that they would never do if they were in real life with others. We'll take that from 1974 to 2020 and the technology that we have now and Twitter and Facebook and everybody. It's, it's insanity that we think we could have real life and real communication and real relationship with anyone under foe virtually mm-hmm. it's, it feels very much a part of this conversation of being on the forest and experiencing the real creation versus one that's been crafted and honed and formed to fit our our whatever yeah our cultural demands yeah I'm glad you didn't hold back on that and it kind of invited us to to land there because I'm being honest with everybody who's listening that what we just heard Chris say, we have to listen. We have to listen to that caution and, and to, to be brave enough to be the ones, you know, that, that idea, be the change you want to see in the world. We love to tweet that, but the reality is we cannot survive if we continue to live in, in, quick offense, you know, quick outrage, quick cancel, all these things that have become normative in our culture. Uh, and, and we've created a platform that, that facilitates that. Um, that's not healthy. I mean, I'll just come out straight and say it. It is not healthy biologically, psychologically, socially, spiritually. We, we can come out and say these things are not healthy. It is not healthy. The fruit of it is not healthy. We can point to it and say that's not good fruit. And on the other side, we started this conversation with an apple. And this incredibly simple and elegant and beautiful thing that God has given us. And the invitation is, you know, choose this day who you will serve. Everybody serves somebody. And I think the invitation is, who will we serve? What life do we want to choose? And I know, I'm, I'm honest in saying, we're not all listening, and no, no, we all can't move up to Shehela Mountain with you, even if we want to. But I think that today, Chris has given us an incredible invitation to the real, to the proximal, to the rootedness, to step back and, and to say, what am I intentional about? And what am I giving my time to? And is there gratitude in that space? And maybe that you can ask that question, how much of the 93% of the time of my inside time is spent with my head down looking at a screen moving past people or engaging Zoom face-to-face? And where are the small opportunities that I can start to find myself shoulder to shoulder again, even if it's just with the people in your own house? So, Chris, thank you just for helping us think through these things and doing it against the backdrop of Shehela Mountain and the, the, the price that you have paid to kind of pioneer, literally, 
a way of living that invites you back to walking out to get eggs and putting your hands to select trees that will become chairs. It just, it's helpful. And we need, there's a prophetic and an artist piece there that Wendell Berry was pointing us towards something. Your life is pointing us towards something. And so I want to thank you for just who you are and give you the last word. You know, we're so, all of us are hurting right now. The world is, uh, there's a lot of, hurt and and brokenness and outrage and all of it is kind of where we're at and there's a lot of exhaustion it feels like our souls want to to take a deep breath so i'm going to let you have the last word just to to give us your encouragement give us your you know as you think about raising your kids and what are you hoping for in the season ahead as we as we pray and hope and work for something around the corner Uh, to remember, and uh, I so don't want to be saying anything cliche, but for me, in the most difficult, trying times, I remember Pickle Ranch. And I remember that this person in front of me is the most precious child of a father. And I know what it feels like to be a dad and to love, and that's just a, a shadow of that father love that is for the person that I'm looking across who is, who I'm having a hard time with. And um, that's as far as I can go there. There are no mere mortals, right? What What a beautiful invitation. Chris, Thank you. I I know that uh, you have been a gift to me and to so many other people, and we're going to be praying for you and the homestead, but thank you for just lighting up our world and being life and beauty in the world, and just the way you're leading, the way you're creating, it is a joy. So thank you so much for sharing some time. I'm going to take us out of here and then circle back up, so stick with me just for a second, but thank you, Chris, for spending some time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening. Make sure to go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Lab the Podcast. You can rate and review us there. And then follow me at Zach J. Elliott or on my website, www.zachjelliot.com. I'll see you again for our next lab session. And until then, here's to more life and more beauty. <laughs>